Well, good morning to each of you. Uh, this is a uh, pre, pre-communion sermon, which I've titled, uh, The Lord Himself Must Examine Me, and I'm taking this from, from 1 Corinthians 4, uh, but the context is the first four chapters. And uh, I will try to uh, um, <clears throat> The whiteboard verse is, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And uh, I'm sorry, I know it's hard to read. It's partly my handwriting and partly the marker. Um, The King James uh, Version says, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. So the first song we sang, uh, Derek, let us, um, one phrase, the second verse maybe, Let none that wait on the Lord let none that wait on thee be ashamed, which actually introduced this sermon. I chose 1 Corinthians 4 because Paul says he has a clear conscience, and he says some things. He doesn't put the basis of a clear conscience is for himself, maybe for us, in relation to a particular situation in Corinth. And uh, I'll just say, um, I didn't really realize when I started working on this sermon that the context uh, was what it is, uh, or that it was... I, I thought maybe that... It, Verses in 1 Corinthians 4 stood on their own more in relation to a clear conscience. And I I wasn't thinking about the context. So uh, I found this uh, sermon preparation to be very challenging uh, for several reasons. One reason, because of what Paul says and leaves unsaid about his clear conscience, too, because my conversations with myself, hope you get that, because my conversations with myself and other people have convinced me that whether or not one has a clear conscience is affected by many factors. Surrounding guilt and shame, and whether people feel like they belong to the people over them and around them. There are many factors in this. And third, my own struggle um, to determine if I have a clear conscience, and I'm being transparent here, especially during times when I have been told that I am guilty of intending to do or of having done something. Um, so I'm just saying the subject of a clear conscience can be very challenging. And it's, I think part of the reason why at communion time uh, people 
call me before communion, and they want to tell them if they are qualified for communion. And there are reasons for this, and I can't speak to all of that in this sermon, but there are reasons. So I'm going to begin here with a reading of 1 Corinthians 4, and I feel a little guilty about this, but I am using the NIV this morning. Uh, which I have some reservation about in some respects, but it's God's Word too. But it's a little easier to follow than the King James or even the New King James, so I'm reading out of the NIV. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore... Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I would say, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And I'll just say that's a challenging sentence. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. And that that statement is precisely the thing that he addresses in the first four chapters, verse 3. The elevation of one leader over another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So here, here's my summary of these verses, and then I will come back to this at the end. In verse 1, he said they should regard the ordained as stewards of God's mysteries. In verse 2, he says stewards must prove that they are faithful. They must be faithful and demonstrate faithfulness. In verses 3 to 4, he says it matters very little to him if they examine him to see if he is faithful because he doesn't even judge himself because God is his judge. In verse 4 he says, since God is the judge, I mean verse 5, he says, since God is the judge, they should suspend judgment of him and let God examine, judge him. And I believe he's saying at Christ's return. In the day. In verse 6, he says he wants to apply this to Apollos and himself, 
part of the contract for the first three chapters. He wants to apply this to Apollos and himself so they will learn not to elevate one leader against another. In verse 7, he says, leaders received the different gifts they have and should neither boast themselves nor be elevated by others for these gifts. And so before I expand on those seven verses, I'm going to talk about the context. So um, they, the Corinthians, Corinthian believers, uh, elevate one leader above another. That Some of this is on your outline there. So Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth during the second missionary journey, and he wrote this letter on the third journey because he had heard from several sources that they elevate one leader against another. They have divisions among them. And he was also being asked questions about other matters as well which he talks about in the remainder of his letter and addresses to some extent in the second, in second Corinthians. So despite their habit of elevating one leader against another, and despite other troubles in the church, Paul begins, which he does in most of his letters, probably all of them, he begins in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, by saying that God has made them holy because they belong to Jesus Christ, and he thanks God for the gifts God has given them. He says gifts of knowledge, gifts of wisdom, gifts of words uh, that enrich the church in every way. Which, of course, is a reminder to us that um, maybe, uh, maybe sometimes uh, we ourselves and the people around us are not as hope- hopeless as God thinks we are, as we think we are. God doesn't see us as hopeless as we do, perhaps. I mean, Paul generally didn't uh, act like people were hopeless, even when he corrected. In 1.10, he entreats them to agree with one another and not to be divided over their leaders. And he appeals to them, I'm not going to read all these verses, but he appeals to them to be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Uh, which means, uh, perfectly joined together, has the idea of to be, uh, to order or arrange themselves in harmony with one another. To think and say uh, things in harmony. And the, the admonition is for everyone to seek to align themselves with those around them. So that he appeals. That's an appeal. And then this appeal is made in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I believe what he's doing is uh, emphasizing the foundation that's necessary for this kind of harmony. And that is uh, that uh, 
relationships and harmonious thinking requires a Lord, the Lord, Christ. He's emphasizing the Lordship of Christ, that they need to gather around Christ. So it's his attempt to establish the discussion about being joined together in the same mind on the foundation of the Lordship of Christ. So the only way that um, people, a group of people, can be in harmony is if they are uh, gathered around Christ and He is their focus and, and the ultimate one that they are receiving direction from and, and seeking to uh, follow. And in this context, uh, to follow Jesus the Lord instead of just following people. But Paul is contrasting oneness of mind because Christ is everyone's Lord with people being separated into factions headed by different human leaders. So any time uh, human leaders try to gain a following for themselves, instead of a following for Christ as Lord, Factions and divisions will develop. I think we all know this is true. But Paul never gives any indication in 1 Corinthians that Paul or Paulus or Peter, those are the three people he names, he never gives any indication in this letter that they are actually doing anything to contribute to what the people are doing by elevating some leaders over others. He doesn't he doesn't say anything about the leaders contributing to that. Uh, he gives no indication that one of these leaders is promoting one of the other leaders or promoting himself and thereby contributing to the people elevating one, one above another. So this is something the Corinthians are doing completely on their own, it appears. So this, uh, my next comment is a little bit of a digression. Uh, I think one thing we know for sure is that no two people think exactly alike, alike. and, and uh, no two leaders have the same personality, the same way of expressing themselves, the same ideas about how everything should happen. They just don't. I've been on many leadership teams, church, organizations, and the people never fully agree. And then it's a challenge. How do we uh, work together? How do we be in harmony? And uh, it's, it's just a challenge. doesn't mean it's impossible. I'm just saying people see things differently. Uh, and this difference in thinking, I want to say, it's not the result of rebellion or lack of submission. And uh, this, this is true whenever people are together. It can be at work, church, home, um, True in marriage, true in church relations. Uh, we're not clones. We're not clones of each other. 
but I would also say um, that the failure of people to hear others' points of view can be the result of stubborn commitment to my point of view, and I can't hear. So the only way people can align themselves with those around them is if each person is properly aligned uh, under the Lordship of Christ. <clears throat> that doesn't solve everything, maybe, but that's, that's a basic truth. So in, in 117, going on, Paul contrasts the wisdom of Christ with the wisdom of men. He says his mission was to preach the gospel of the cross instead of human wisdom, instead of using eloquent words. In 120, Paul says God has made philosophers, scholars, and brilliant debaters look foolish. I'm not expanding on these statements. It's just things he says. In 121 to 25, Paul says God is using the foolish preaching of the death and resurrection of Christ to save both Jews and Gentiles, and this is something human wisdom cannot do. It's the gospel of Christ, of the death and resurrection of Christ. In 124, Paul says Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In 131, Paul says that the solution to divisions is to boast in the Lord or maybe you could say the solution to divisions is to rally around Christ instead of rallying around men or people. First uh, Corinthians 2 uh, talks about three sets of things, two wisdoms, two spirits, two representative people. Uh, so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, When he first came to them, when he came to them the first time, he came thoughtfully. <laughs> I, I, uh, I find all these kinds of statements very fascinating. He says he came thoughtfully. He decided ahead of time that instead of using big philosophical language, he would preach the simple message of Christ crucified. And I think, I think some of the reason for this kind of statement by him is he's wanting them to understand that he was not trying to promote himself and his uh, intelligence. Now, maybe I should just stop here and say, I think uh, Bible students, uh, this is just a general agreement, would say that, that Paul was an extremely intelligent person. And he understood um, the philosophies of the day, and he could hold his own in a conversation with, with uh, any, I don't know what to say, highly intelligent person or a person versed in whatever, human wisdom. And he knew and could speak. I believe I'm right, uh, 15 languages. So he's saying, I came to you thoughtfully, and I came and preached Christ as simply as I knew how. And he says that he came to them in much weakness, timidness, 
timidness and trembling. In 2.5 he says he did this so they would trust in the power of God instead of human wisdom. In chapter 2 verses 10 to 16 Paul says God's spirit reveals spiritual truth to people. No one knows what someone is thinking except the person himself. He said the He says these kinds of things. A person has either the spirit of this world or the spirit of God. Only those who possess the spirit of God are qualified to discern, examine, and know hidden things. And in 2.15, Paul says, The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. And I'm sorry, I I don't know how to explain all these things that Paul said. I'm not sure. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, uh, Their jealousy and quarreling proves they are not spiritually mature. And they need to use... He says, Apollos and himself as a model to develop a more inclusive perspective instead of raising some up and putting others down. So in 3, 1 to 4, he says that when he was with them the first time, he could not speak to them. This is really strong. He could not speak to them as he would to spiritual people, but he had to speak to them as infants. In other words, he had to feed them milk. Paul says they are still immature. And he knows this is true because they are jealous and quarrel with each other and they elevate some leaders above others. So that proves it. In 3, 5 to 9, Paul says that he planted and Apollos watered And God gave the increase. He says, God assigned gifts. God assigned tasks. And even though they had different gifts and tasks, they both had the same purpose. The furtherance of the gospel. The winning of Jews and Gentiles. And he says, each will be rewarded according to his own labor. And then in 3.10 to 15, Paul says the only true foundation on which to build is Jesus Christ. How a person builds will be evaluated by God. In the end, God will be the final judge of how they build and the value of it. In 3.16 and 17, Paul says the Corinthian believers are God's temple, despite all this stuff they said negative. Believers, Corinthian believers are God's temple and belong to God, and they should be careful how they build. They need to do this thoughtfully. And then in 3.18, Paul warns them not to deceive themselves by thinking they are wiser than they are. 
It is important to be self-reflective. I think he's commending them or encouraging them to be self-reflective and not self-deceived. And I believe uh, 3.18, that verse, summarizes uh, a main point that Paul is making in chapters 1 to 4, and that is be careful not to overestimate your or your leader's importance or standing or opinion or whatever. These people are not God. They have a place. They have a role. um, And they have responsibility. uh, But they are not the Lord. In 3.21 to 23, Paul says, All their leaders belong to them. And they all belong to Christ. So now we're at chapter 4. So Paul here uses himself and Apollos as an example, illustration, so they will learn not to go beyond what is written, whatever that means. Hope you enjoy that statement. In verse 1, he says that they should regard the ordained as stewards of God's mystery. Okay, the idea there is the ordained are servants, stewards of Christ's gospel, and they are uh, what we might call administrators, dispensers, and they are accountable to God. Uh, So his point is the Corinthians are elevating them too high. They are not God. They they are stewards. In verse 2 he says stewards must prove they are faithful. So the steward ordained person who is faithful has passed the test. There is, there's no need or reason to elevate one faithful person above another. I believe that's his point. Now, verse, verses 3 and 4, uh, he says it matters very little to him. He doesn't really care. He doesn't really care. It doesn't matter very much to him if they examine him to see if he is faithful because he doesn't even judge himself about this because God is his judge. So these two verses introduce the question of who decides. Okay, I'm going to stop. The things I'm saying here, you are very free to say anything you want to when I sit down. It's fine. Okay? These, these verses introduce the question of who decides if we are guilty. Is it our view of ourselves? Is it other people's view of us? Or is it God's view of us? How do these things work 
together. And I'll just say I have lived long enough and been in enough hard places to realize that the, the, the answers to this question are not that easy for the answer. The statement is made in the context, which I think we need to remember this. This statement is made in the context of Paul admonishing them for choosing some leaders over others. He is saying that his view is that if they choose him, that doesn't matter to him. His value does not depend on their view of him. It doesn't make him a more faithful person if they elevate him. When Paul says he does not judge himself, pardon me, but I don't quite believe it. Okay. Let me explain. When he says he does not judge himself, I do not believe he means he doesn't have any evaluation of himself. Because in verse 4, he says he has a clear conscience. And he can't say that unless he did some evaluating of himself. I believe what he's saying is that he does not have the final word. He's not the final judge. He can have a thought about evaluation about himself, and others can too. But he's, he's realizing, admitting that he doesn't have the final say. It's not like he can just get in his corner and add up his positives and negatives and decide whatever, uh, you're still God. This suggests that in our evaluation of ourselves and others, we need to remember that we are not God. We do not have the ability to say that our evaluation of ourselves and others is uh, right, right, right. And we cannot possibly be mistaken. We also need to remember that Paul is talking about evaluating the faithfulness of leaders and not whether a person is deserving of assurance of salvation or of being qualified to take communion. I'm, I'm just being... That's true. There's a context here, and he's, he's talking about a clear conscience about the thing that's going on here. And he's not talking specifically about a clear conscience to take communion. And that's part of the reason that I feel uh, bad, badly, about using this passage for this sermon. <clears throat> Paul is saying he is not seeking their praise or approval. That's one thing he's saying. Um, So, leaders who seek for praise and approval end up doing things for their own sake, for what it gains for them. And sometimes when they do that, they fail to do what is best for the people they lead. 
And that is not right. Paul is also saying he's not aware of anything against himself. <clears throat> um, maybe I just have a sensitive conscience, but most of the time, most days, I can think of at least one thing that I'm not okay with about myself. Okay? And this used to be way worse for me 30 years ago than it is now, or 40 or 50 years ago. I, I think I spent a lot of time not knowing what to do with the way I felt about myself. Not getting things right. So I wonder how many of us can say we are not aware of anything against us. We're just fine. In verse 4, he says he has a clear conscience. Uh, one thing I read about Paul is that he had a, quote, this is what it was, he had a robust conscience, whatever that is. In verse 4, he says he has a clear conscience, but that doesn't prove his innocence. Innocence because God is the judge. So I can understand Paul's statement here because this is precisely uh, what I have done often. And I'm going to be transparent here about this. When other people pass judgment on me, which I've had happen various times. Uh, you know, you have to ask God, what is true about this? Uh, sometimes I'll ask myself. And sometimes even if I don't ask her, she'll let me know. Which is fine. Okay, we have to grow up. All right? You have to ask God, what, what is true about this? And uh, on a few occasions, after someone has condemned me, sometimes publicly, I've had a few of those, uh, I've asked the church to evaluate me and say to me whatever they want to. That can feel scary, but it can also be helpful. But the reality is that it doesn't matter, matter whether we or someone else is evaluating our faithfulness as a leader or our qualifications to take communion. Any negative evaluation or judgment can under, undermine one's assurance that I'm not a bad person. It just can't. So, I'll just say for myself, I, I can, um, I, I've been in uh, places of leadership for over 50 years, ever since I was born. That's not true, but that's a long time. feels like a long time. And... 
I'm able to function in my leadership role as long as I do not feel guilt or shame about my responsibilities. That's me. As long as as I believe I'm being faithful. And sometimes, uh, without any input from anyone, I can wake up in the morning and wonder how I'm doing. It might be because I'm too tired. It might be I don't know what. And and, uh, so then I'll start doing some evaluating of myself. And uh, generally, if I have negative thoughts and evaluations about myself, maybe the things I'm saying here don't make a lick of sense to you. It's not you at all. Even if I have negative thoughts and evaluations about myself, usually I can decide uh, to make changes about things that are bothering me, my conscience. I can make decisions to, to deal with that, or I can uh, decide to make a statement to somebody and ask forgiveness or say, I'm sorry that went that way. Uh, and I can do this without thinking I'm a hopeless case, you know, and condemn. Uh, but the problem comes when someone else has a negative evaluation of me. And I can pretty quickly go into a hole and view myself as a hopeless case, and I don't know what in the world to do. And this probably means that uh, nobody likes me and nobody wants me to do whatever I'm supposed to do. Okay, forgive me, but hey, you know. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that I have the most negative evaluations of myself as a result of someone else evaluating and condemning me uh, or demeaning and shaming me. And I've had some of those. And I'm I'm not just saying you people are doing this to me. I'm just saying this has happened in my life in leadership. So in verse 5, he says, Since God is a judge, they should suspend judgment of their leaders and let God examine them at Christ's return. And I believe Paul is saying that their choosing between leaders is not of God. It's not a responsibility they have. And they should stop. He's just saying, stop it. This is God's responsibility and he will do whatever evaluating that needs to be done at his return. In verse 6 he says, he wants to apply this to Apollos and himself so they will learn not to go beyond what is written. That grand little phrase. And it's something like, so they will learn not to paint outside the lines. Or, not to do something that scripture condemns. Or maybe not to believe or do something that the facts of the situation don't support. Okay? Like, okay, there's some things right and some things wrong. Some things are what they are. Don't get outside of that and do things and say things that aren't appropriate. This is the idea. In this situation... Not to go beyond what is written, he means not to elevate one leader against another. 
So don't do this. And I think he's actually referring to the Scripture, that the Scripture does not allow this. In verse 7, he says, Leaders receive the different gifts they have and should neither boast about themselves nor be elevated by others for these gifts, nor should they be put down, demeaned, or shamed for their gifts and who they are. Okay, my summary. I think I'm going to make it. So one thing I learned during my study for this sermon is that the most important cultural norm among non-Christians in Corinth was the attainment of honor and the avoidance of shame. Anything they could do to feel better about themselves, I'm talking about non-Christians, anything they could do to feel better about themselves and to avoid being shamed, that, that was the thing you had to do. And connected to this was the reality that in Corinth, and maybe in Virginia, everyone came under someone, meaning that everyone's life was dependent on someone else's evaluation of them. That's kind of how life works, you know? At home, at work, maybe in church, we all are under someone. Elevating or its opposite, which would be shaming of someone, is common. It's common in the world. But it's also common among believers. I'm sorry, it is. And the the matter is alluded to by Paul in 4.14 when he says he's not correcting them to shame them. That's not his goal. He's doing it to help them, to address the problem. Paul's comments demonstrate that a person could feel condemned even though they have done nothing worthy of a negative judgment. Several more things. Lack of a clear conscience is a result of either guilt or shame. Guilt is a result of what a person does or is accused of doing. And shame is a result of who a person is or is accused of being. Like you're a bad person. In Corinth, Paul doesn't mention anything the leaders are doing that is wrong. So the raising up and putting down of leaders functioned as shame. It wasn't about sins they committed. The solution to guilt is confession of sin and the solution to shame is belonging. And so Paul says in chapter 4 that uh, they belong to him. He says he is their father in the gospel and he urged them to imitate him and he said that he will send his son, Timothy, to them and he said Timothy will remind them of Paul's way of life. So he, he is trying there to create a bond, a belonging, that he's corrected them, but they belong to him. He's not trying to get rid of them. So just let me say, uh, among brothers and sisters in a church or in a family, uh, 
the church is a family too. And whatever, there's not a single person in any church who is perfect. There is no such thing. Okay, thank you. Which means that when people are being transparent about their spiritual and emotional state, what they need is um, understanding and compassion and support and maybe they need some admonition, maybe. Um, but they need, above everything else, to know that despite what their thing is, that they still belong to me, they still belong to you, they, we all belong to each other, and we are not going to try to get rid of someone because they have this thing. Now, I'm not talking about some gross sin when I say that. This, this is the challenge of um, what we do with people who are honest about their life. Paul is saying that when he considers their elevating of some leaders above others and thereby putting some leaders below others, and thereby creating divisions. He is not. He, say, he said, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. He says, number one, he has no personal awareness of elevating himself or contributing to others, elevating him above other leaders. He's not aware of this. Number two, he is very quick to accept other people's he is not very quick to accept other people's evaluation of whether he's guilty in this matter. And three, he is depending on God, Jesus, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to evaluate him. He's open to that. He wants that. <clears throat> and finally, I'll just say uh, this is uh, has been a very difficult subject. And I know I've not answered all the questions, and uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom in these matters. And thank you for your attention.